Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past, during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial, or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for $2.99 a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for $2.99 a month, or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included, and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now too. Just go to the podcast section and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new Queer Serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say queer history is world history. Other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series episode by episode with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history and a spin-off of an event that I briefly touched on in Season 3, Episode 7, if you want a hint. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. I'm James Day, General Manager of KQED in San Francisco. The program you're about to see deals with a subject which is controversial, delicate, and to some downright unpleasant. This podcast includes text from real homophile-era publications, letters, and organizational documents read by voice actors. The show contains identifying terms that may now be out of date. In dealing with this subject, we were mindful of the fact that it is surrounded by a good deal of sensationalism and morbidity. It is the nature of our social system that the first step in the solution to a problem is a recognition of the problem, a gathering of the facts, and a discussion of these facts. 
The problem of homosexuality is age old. In ancient Greece and Rome, this condition was apparently accepted as a way of life. In this country, the opposite is true. In fact, it is hard to find any subject about which the feelings of society are as strong. With all the revulsion that some people feel toward homosexuality, it cannot be dismissed by simply ignoring its presence. It cannot be swept under the rug. It will not just go away by itself. And quite possibly, an objective discussion of this condition might lead to a broader understanding of the subject. This program attempts to explore the problem of homosexuality, to cast light into an area in which the shadows have long been deep. September 11th, 1961, KQED in San Francisco airs a new documentary produced by John Rivas. He writes, The object of the program, which he originally titles The Gay Ones, will be to present an objective analysis of the subject as possible without being overly clinical. The questions will be basic ones. Who are the gay ones? How do they become gay? How do they live in a heterosexual society? What treatment is there by medicine or psychotherapy? How are they treated by society, and how would they like to be treated? He explores his questions of homosexuality in a series of smaller subjects, presenting assumed stereotypes and allowing experts to demystify the confusion and explain the facts of homosexuality. On a budget of less than $100, Rivas and his co-producer Irving Seraf shoot the entire documentary in the KQED studio, except for one segment on location at the Black Cat with owner Saul Struman, which sounds fascinating to me, but unfortunately that footage was lost in the cutting room. While commercial stations and sponsors turn down the program, KQED buys the idea under a new title, The Rejected. 18% of all American men, for at least three years during their adulthood, have as much or more sexual experience with other men as with women. That's the estimate given by Dr. Alfred Kinsey in his book, Sexual Behavior in the Human Male. In other words, approximately 15 million men in this country have or will have prolonged homosexual histories. When this fact about a person becomes known, he is, in truth, rejected. This is a program about homosexuality. What causes it? Is there a cure for it? What does the homosexual say about his condition? What does society feel about the homosexual? Previously. Nobody moved. Hands up. And in the biggest action of its kind in the history of the department, police raided a small restaurant at Bush and Taylor Streets and jailed 101 suspected sex deviants. There's nothing wrong with being gay. The crime is getting caught. I understand there's a representative of the Metropolitan Police Department here. Whatever fate you decide, good or bad, 
I will improve it. The camarones are coming. They're coming to get us. Okay, I'll walk. I'll walk. Sent by the moral squad, no doubt. Jack Nichols, by the way. Frank Kameny. They were drawing up bylaws. We'll be called the Mattachine Society of Washington. We are an independent group. This organization will be radical, unwavering in our pursuit for justice. The society's income and its membership have been decreasing at an alarming rate. We are beginning the process of getting the society out of the branch office business. Alcohol is indeed a monster, and everything that you say about him is the absolute truth. I have found him completely inexplicable. It may very well be a good thing. There would then be an East Coast Mattachine. Down the streets of New York, Charles Hayden tapes up yellow sheets of paper on storefronts and subways. There goes Miss Mattachine. Wicker Research Studies. Visiting home from Texas, Charles Hayden decides if he's going to be militantly gay, he should just tell his parents. I don't think you're going to get very far with this, but do me one favor. Of course. Just don't involve my good name. Under Charles Hayden's new name, Randolph Wicker, he receives hundreds of responses from Mattachinos. Would you want your son to be homosexual? Would you like to have children? Do you like Tallulah Bankhead? We want to start our own organization. The first meeting of the Hose and Heels Club is formally open. It was nice to have a local group where feelings and opinions could be aired. It still wasn't enough. Society programs you to think in terms of the stereotype of masculinity and femininity. Perhaps some may feel we are advocating conformity. We are. They get together to begin the first gay newspaper in San Francisco, the League for Civil Education News. Jose and Guy report descriptions of cops who entrap people under headlines like How to Spot a Cop. Elsie begins a new push for voter registration. July 1960, the homosexual vote. Bulletins are typed on single sheets of paper and dispersed through the bars. Getting people registered to vote, that's even harder sometimes. We're running all over the city, in the bars, in the bathhouses, in the glory holes, poking our heads through. Did you register to vote yet? There are enough of us to win this fight. That's why I, Jose Saria, of the Black Cat, declare my candidacy for supervisor. This is the serialized story of queer liberation in America, from day one to Stonewall. I'm Devlin Camp. Last January, Edward R. Murrow narrated a one-hour CBS program entitled The Business of Sex. The tape-recorded program included Margaret Mead, a Roman Catholic priest, a psychologist, and others. I believe the Mattachine Society could organize a similar program comparable in structure. Will you please give this idea your prayerful thought? Thank you. The attitude of a lady at the time of the trial of Oscar Wilde may illustrate the trend which I am attempting to point to here. She was asked what she thought of so-called deviant sexual behavior engaged in by adults. And what she said was, I don't care what sort of sexual activity adult persons behave in or engage in, so long as they don't do it in the streets and frighten the horses. History has shown that these laws do not work to achieve the purposes claimed for them. Public sentiment is shifting, particularly in San Francisco. Even though not one month ago, the city saw its largest gay bar raid in their history, the Tay Bush raid, the one Ethel Merman almost got caught up in. Hal Call rushes to the Hall of Justice at nearly 4 a.m. More than 100 people have been arrested. Oh, there you are, Hal. The Mattachine's on the job, right? Hal spends the entire night into the morning hours talking to suspects, getting people processed, figuring out how each person will pay their bail bondsmen and attorneys. Mattachine has very little money, but Hal promises Pan Graphic will print the briefs free of charge for all defendants who are convicted and want to appeal to a higher court. 
Mattachine starts a defense fund for donations to cover the help needed. In these months leading up to Election Day, Jose Saria has been pushing arrested gay men to plead not guilty and fight for their rights to assemble in the bars. Now, it's like Dale Jennings way back in the earliest Mattachine days, on a much, much larger scale. It seems everyone is pleading not guilty. The San Francisco Examiner prints the names, addresses, and employers of many of the arrested, but just the... Actors, actresses, professional dancers, a state hospital psychologist, a bank department manager, an artist, and an Air Force purchasing agent. Then the paper goes on to discuss the issue as a case of civil rights. The San Francisco media, in general, has been influenced by the many gay issues recently. The Wolden scandal in the 1959 mayoral election, the Valerga decision, in which attorney Morris Lowenthal defeated the ABC's Resorts for Sex Perverts rule with the help of the Daughters of Belitis, and also the Gayola scandal, cops taken down for blackmailing gay bars, and even Saria's run for supervisor. Coming up on this election, the police raid of the Bush Inn is no surprise. A raid of this size is clearly a political move to make the mayor look like he's cleaning up. Legendary journalist Herb Kane writes for the San Francisco Chronicle, Quick cut to a police raid on a cafe at Taylor and Bush. The mayor is pleased. Something is being done. Nothing is being done. The fashionable ones don't give themselves away. They wear elegant clothes, smell of expensive cologne, and live at good addresses and are left alone. The only moral, if it's a question of morals, don't be a poor one. Don't be a poor anything. Lawyers, professors, and outraged journalists pressure elected officials to update the vagrancy laws and protect due process. More vagrancy arrests have been dismissed than prosecuted. It's an old law that's becoming increasingly difficult to justify using. Vagrancy laws are 14th century British laws that banned the migration of workers in order to keep cheap labor in less populated regions. They were later used to keep free slaves from moving around and using public spaces. At the beginning of the 20th century, they were used by cops to stop sex workers, pickpockets, and people experiencing homelessness, as we heard in episode two. Depression-era migrants leaving the Dust Bowl were arrested under these vagrancy laws. Over time, the laws picked up homosexuals and more people of color. Some of them deemed thousand-dollar vagrants because that's how much their bail would cost. By the mid-50s, more than half of the thousand-dollar vagrants were people of color, incredibly disproportionate to San Francisco's population. And women in general were arrested as vagrants for wearing men's clothes. Basically, if you're a person of color or live at the lowest level of class or you defy the conformity of gender or sexuality, you pay to walk on the city's streets. You are the rejected. With respect to this area, the basic fact is that the laws which have been aimed at controlling such conduct are and have proved to be unenforceable. The present day social and legal approach to the control of homosexuality is based largely on the moral code of the Bible. God does not desire the destruction of the evildoer, but rather the correction of the evil. These crimes, such as sodomy, may be done with the full compliance of both parties. They are still illegal. The individual, of course, is subject to blackmail. As Mr. Bendix said, our laws refer to acts rather than people. These laws do not work against any group of people or any kind of person. They are against acts by whomever committed. These acts are unnatural and can have no proper purpose except the self-gratification of the individual. It was therefore simply an evil to be punished. It can lead to no useful end to tolerate it and will simply reduce our moral standing, 
our moral determination. There was no basis then for considering the problem as one involving a form of pathological behavior. As to enforcement, it may not be possible. There's another point of view, of course, and Mr. Lowenthal will present that. The attorney who defended Mary's First and Last Chance and the Black Cat Cafe, Morris Lowenthal, he goes on to KQED's The Rejected to present the homosexuals case. And against retaining these laws, Mr. Morris Lowenthal, San Francisco attorney, who has debated these issues often with Mr. Hutchinson before the California Supreme Court. The clips you hear of the rejected in this episode are not voice actors. It's the real thing. Now, Mr. Hutchinson has debated this subject with me on several occasions and is repeating many of the fictions and myths that we've heard on this subject for many years. And it's about time we looked at the practical side. He indicates himself that it is impossible to enforce the laws, and you've heard from some experts as to why. Because, first of all, there are a vast number of Americans involved here. Mr. Hutchison said, well, the people enforce the laws. Is that true? Experts in the field say that there are six million homosexual acts for every 20 arrests. So we see that the laws are not enforced and by the police department, the district attorney, or by the people themselves. Why, is, why are the laws in the books? The common law, these were not violations. These laws were adopted later. They were adopted before we had any knowledge of the true facts, facts which have been developed by Dr. Bowman, by Kinsey, by Engel, and others. These laws reflect certain fictions, some of which you've heard a few minutes ago. The assumption, for example, that homosexuality survives by proselytizing, by teachers taking advantage of children, or adults taking advantage of children, or of other adults. But actually, as a study made by a California subcommittee on sex crimes proved, only a small percentage of homosexuals, just like heterosexuals, attempt to seduce, assault, or initiate relations with children or with other adults. Now, the fiction that we heard here that homosexuality is biologically unnatural is a very common fiction. Kinsey statistics have exploded it. It's a common phenomenon among animals, and as Kinsey once expressed, neither biologists nor animals were consulted when the laws were drawn. The homosexual conduct is generally harmless to society, that homosexuals are no menace to society, that they do nothing to destroy the social structure or to disrupt the family, and as the legislative committee indicated, they are not anti-sexual individuals. And strangely enough, they've exploded one other myth mentioned earlier, homosexuality did not cause a demoralization or decay of civilization. They exist, homosexuals, in every occupation, in every city. Now, it's not a disease, as some people have indicated or suggested, but we have now been uh, called attention to the fact that there is an increase in venereal disease disease among homosexuals. And Mr. Hutchinson says that proves we should keep the law. It proves the reverse. The law should be removed. Why? Because the increase is due to the fact that many homosexuals uh, hesitate to go to venereal disease centers or to their own physicians. They don't know that information will be kept confidential. Actually, they discourage from doing so with the result that venereal disease increases. But when we talk about venereal disease among homosexuals, again, we're talking about a very small percentage of the homosexual population. 
uh, government regulations and security programs and the armed services have made second-class citizens of these people and many uh, fine persons have been dismissed from employment and stigmatized purely on gossip. These are other reasons why the law should be changed. As a deterrent, of course, to crime or violence that does not exist. The laws don't reduce the number of homosexuals nor the number of homosexual acts. As to the moral code, there again, Mr. Hutchison is confusing, as the law does, sin, morals, and crime. The code is a more, mere codification of prejudices and superstitions and ancient taboos that no longer exist. After the Tay Bush raid, the vagrancy laws are overturned and replaced with anti-prostitution and public drunkenness laws. Governor Brown says, we are saying it is what a man does, not who or where he is that defines the crime. Still, one judge calls the city a Parisian pansy's paradise and threatens stiff penalties against the gay bars. But it becomes clear that these charges against the 101 arrested at the Taybush won't hold. The bar's manager even pleads not guilty and says his establishment is a gathering spot for homosexuals. The public clearly won't tolerate this behavior by the police anymore. Let this be a warning, the judge says in the Taybush case, and drops most of the charges. San Francisco bars earn the right for homosexuals to assemble once again, and homosexuals earn the right to due process. And now more than ever, there is a voting block ready for election day. It's undeniable. We are a minority community. Hal Call writes, Who declares that special pains must be made to arrest homosexuals? Who decided that gay bars must have their licenses revoked? Do outraged citizens, political forces, church and clergy, or just a set of no-faces make this demand? Time and time again, the state Supreme Court has given the axe to state laws which have declared it illegal for homosexuals to congregate in a bar. It is not illegal, the court has said. Therefore, gay bars are not illegal. Can a police official assume the authority to close such establishments as he sees fit in spite of what the courts have ruled? Or can the mayor assume such authority in spite of his possible aim of having a record of strong law enforcement practices when he runs for higher political office in another year? And finally, we can see no legal basis for the Alcoholic Beverage Control Department to ignite its own crusading fire about something which the people in the courts do not oppose nor consider a threat to the community. Whether or not city officials read Halcall's writing, what he's written is true. As Election Day approaches in San Francisco, the city officials see that with so few people running for the five open supervisor seats, this drag queen, Jose Saria, who is funded by less than $500 and campaigning almost exclusively on the weekends at the Black Cat, he can actually win a spot on city council. With just 10 hours left to file for candidacy, nearly 30 new people sign up to run, including a musician and a garbage collector. The city is nervous. Officials grab anyone they can find to run. It's the most people on the ballot ever. Come election day, Jose Saria wins 6,000 votes. But the ballot is so watered down that he doesn't win the race. Well, I came in ninth. Out of 33, that's not bad. So you see, that's what they did. I could have gotten more votes, but the gay community is our own enemy. What do other homosexuals think about the so-called queen? The men of the Mattachine Society talk plainly about men like Jose. What are their feelings about themselves and their place in society? 
The Mattachine Society has its headquarters in San Francisco and offices in New York, Chicago, Boston, and Denver. Its aim, to help its own members with counsel and legal advice, and to attempt to educate the public on homosexuality. Here are three members of the Mattachine Society. They are all three showing their faces on television. Harold Call, President. Yes, President. Just days before, the San Francisco chapter declared Hal Call their president at the 8th Convention, where five FBI special agents observed the event. Don Lucas, Executive Secretary. And Les Fisher. Hal Call speaks to the camera. We think the Swish, or the Queen, represents actually a small minority within the whole homosexual grouping. But to the public, this is the stereotyped view or picture by which all homosexuals are judged, it seems. These people actually, in most cases, are not even liked by the rest of their homosexual brethren because they have perhaps re rejected themselves and they feel that society has rejected them. Despite the homophile message against swishy, queeny gay men, Saria's campaign teaches politicians to knock on the door of the gay community come every election following 1961. Votes mean power, and power is a persuasive reason to encourage people to come out of the closet. I proved my point by saying there were 10,000 voting queens, and 10,000 voting queens is a good block. All we have to do is stick together. In recent years, there have been attempts to determine the strength of the homosexual vote in San Francisco. The homosexual minority is unlike any other minority group. Homosexuals cannot be bound together by tradition, as in the case of Jews. They cannot be readily identified, as can the Negroes. Homosexuals do not have a common ground in the areas of religion, politics, or economics. Homosexuals are from all ethnic groups, of all religions, from every economic and educational level. They are Catholics, Protestants, Jews, agnostics, atheists, metaphysicians. They are Republicans, Democrats, and Socialists. They are liberals and conservatives. They are union workers and business management. They are professional and unskilled. And these various influences will have more to do with how they vote than their sexuality. We formed the Mattachine Society, which has worked for education, research, and social service in this whole homosexual problem. The word Mattachine comes from the language of Provence in Southern Europe. It actually means little fool. The Mattachines in the medieval ages were the court jesters, the clowns, the soothsayers, the teachers, prophets who stood behind the throne and could often speak the truth in spite of stern consequences. The purpose of the organization is to publish a magazine, to hold public discussion forums, and to educate and to aid homosexual individuals and in groups in various ways. It's not a pen pal organization, nor is it an organization for homosexual contact. We are calling for a change of law because we know the number of homosexuals is large. But his magazine is failing, and Hal's message excludes so much of his own community. As his magazine becomes less of the Mattachine's focus, it is mainstream media, like this documentary, that advertises the Mattachine organization. But other, more inclusive publications thrive, like the latter. 
Jose continues to work on the League for Civil Education News, LCE, or ELSI, which also hopes to provide job referrals, personal counseling, housing, and other services that LGBTQ centers will one day have. Jose will soon leave that paper, though, for grander plans on his mind. The people can't be liberated by newspapers alone, and they no longer need a court jester. They need a queen. There's a great difference between these different individuals, between the individual who is completely homosexual and the other individual who perhaps is predominantly heterosexual. Dr. Carl Bowman, advisor to Virginia Prince at Transvestia, explains the Kinsey scale for viewers of The Rejected, showing the audience that sexuality is a spectrum, and thus many queer people are different. Dr. Carl Bowman, former director of Langley Porter Clinic, past president of the American Psychiatric Association. Therefore, when we are discussing the problem of homosexuality, we must not fall into the error of assuming that all the individuals so labeled are exactly alike. Generalizations become more difficult. In D.C., an activist unlike any other runs for his own seat as president of the new Mattachine Society of Washington, or MSW. Given the realities and problems of fighting the government on my own, the time has come to fight collectively. November 15, 1961, the small D.C. group of five holds their first official MSW meeting in an apartment to establish their goals. They'll be independent of all other Mattachine groups. They'll behave as more of an activist group than the other homophile organizations. They aren't interested in scientific studies of homosexuals. They already know firsthand that discrimination exists. That's their focus. They plan to get a P.O. box, and they finalize their constitution and bylaws. To act by any lawful means to secure for homosexuals the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, as proclaimed for all men by the Declaration of Independence, and to secure for homosexuals the basic rights and liberties established by word and the spirit of the Constitution of the United States. And they elect Frank Kameny as their president. We will not just focus on education of the homosexual, as that is an often ineffective method of changing prejudice. We will not focus on social services and fixing short-term issues. We will look to the movement of African Americans fighting for their civil rights. We will demand change, as they do. We cannot stand upon an ivory tower concept of aloof, detached dignity. This is a movement, in many respects, of down-to-earth, grassroots, sometimes tooth-and-nail politics. Frank is prepared to fight the radical legal battle, but he has no intentions of violent action or any sort of picket or riot. He's like Harry Hay in that he believes he is part of an ethical minority with its own culture, but he's also like Hal Call in that he was forced to fight in a war for America, and he feels he deserves to integrate himself and his community into American mainstream society. He deserves his job back. With nothing but time on his hands, Frank hits the Washington gay bars to pass out Mattachine information and returns home, as always, to sit down at his typewriter, writing letter after letter after letter. I wish to furnish information concerning a newly formed organization in Washington, D.C. known as... The Managing Society. The clerk at the FBI Washington field office misheard the word Mattachine on the phone. 
Their notes really do say the managing society. Which he stated was supposed to be a homosexual society, but instead has proven communist infiltrated. Oh, that old chestnut. Can you come into the field office tomorrow to be interviewed, Mr... Because the redactor at the FBI will miss this informant's name on a document just once before the Bureau released the records of this phone call, we know that the caller's name was... Mr. Warren Scarberry. Scarberry visits the FBI Washington field office on May 29, 1962. He's young, 19. He says he's a member of the Mattachine Society of Washington, and he wishes... To furnish the FBI a couple names of members who are government employees. The names he supplies are redacted in the record of this meeting, but a phrase after one of the names is not blacked out. The president of this organization... Why are you providing this information? The FBI agent asks. Let's just say I'm angry with the homosexual element in this town and that this is my way of getting even with them. Can you provide any more names? No. Most members use pseudonyms in the meetings and when they receive mail from the society, but the secretary has a list of all the members, the addresses, and their assigned code names. I believe I can get this list for the FBI because the secretary has taken a liking to me. Okay. Also, I'd like to provide the name of someone who applied for a job at the CIA with whom I had a homosexual affair. Okay, then. Scarberry spends the rest of the interview spilling the tea on his own roommate, Ronald Brass. Brass is a member of the Washington Mattachine, an employee of the Department of Commerce looking for a new job at the CIA, and Scarberry's lover. Anticipating infiltration, but perhaps not leaks from inside like Scarberry, the MSW has already cracked down on security after that very first meeting at the Hay Adams Hotel. There are only two sets of membership records, one with the secretary and one with Frank Kameny. Any new members must have two sponsors, majority approval from the board, and a three-month probationary period before they are even considered a member. And even still, they are allowed to use pseudonyms the entire time, including socially with each other. Two days later, Scarberry attends the next MSW meeting with Ronald Brass, his roommate and lover. Afterward, Scarberry calls the agent. I'm unable to get the membership list, but I do have a list of homosexuals who reside in the metropolitan area. 85 names. And I'll continue to work on the MSW list. The list is in the agent's hands by the end of the night. Six days later, two agents arrive at the Department of Commerce. They take Ronald Brass to a private room and ask if he is a member of the Mattachine Society of Washington. They ask him to reconstruct the membership list by learning the other members' names. Brass asks if refusing this request will result in his dismissal. No, they say. We're just here to investigate. Brass declines their request for him to name names, and he returns to work, waiting for the axe to fall. And soon, it will. Is it possible to diagnose a homosexual simply by seeing him and talking with him for a few minutes? Many homosexuals claim that they can do this. And psychiatrists who've worked a great deal with homosexuals can undoubtedly spot a majority of them. On the other hand, the average individual would fall down very badly in attempting to do this. There is a common idea that the male homosexual is detected by body build, dress, speech, general behavior. 
It is true that, is, that almost anyone can spot a certain group of homosexuals by their tendency to ape feminine dress and feminine manners. The type of haircut, the use of perfume and even lipstick, the excessive amount of jewelry worn, as well as the mannerisms and behavior, may betray such an individual as homosexual to anyone. However, there are plenty of male homosexuals with broad shoulders, heavy build, who seem to be the epitome of masculinity. It has been claimed by many observers that homosexuality is more frequent among athletes and persons in the military service, the two groups that would seem to be the symbols of masculinity. If you, as a new chapter, begin from the first to worry about the wrong people joining, or if you fear what may come about if the wrong people join, you will find that your entire life as a chapter will be hamstrung by this fear. Phyllis Lyon writes to the new Chicago Daughters of Belitis chapter president. If you, as the founding members, project your fears to new people, they will also be afraid. And this fear can permeate an entire chapter, sapping its will to venture into new fields, its very will to exist. One of the primary purposes of DOB is to help the lesbian. And you can only help her by allowing her in, so you have the chance. As the second Daughters of Belitis convention prepares to gather in Hollywood, the members across the country continue to discuss the requirements of conformity, or whether conformity is required at all. At their first convention, women were required to wear dresses and skirts in order to avoid police harassment. Two years later, West Coast women advise more tolerance for any lesbian looking to join. This is, of course, an issue for all homophile groups, including One Magazine and The Mattachine. These three organizations are advocating for homosexuals to be treated like everyone else. They push for integration into society as it is. As Brown v. Board of Education is still fresh in everyone's mind, using phrases like integration into actually sounds pretty radical to most people. It sounds like a big step forward. I want to be like everybody else and not lead this double life. It's no fun to have a job and always worry whether someone is going to find out that I'm a homosexual. To join one of these groups, you must be radical and militant enough to break the rules. But once inside the group, it's all about safety from government interference. Don't push new radical ideas or draw attention to yourself or the group. Don't put on pants if you're a woman. Don't put on heels if you're a man. The daughters continue to work toward changing society's attitudes. At the second convention, June 23, 1962, they discuss religion, legislation, Dr. Evelyn Hooker speaks on mental health, and the women also discuss media representation, which they do not have as lesbians in KQED's The Rejected. As festivities of the DOB convention were getting underway, Stella Rush reports in the latter, the president-elect of the Los Angeles chapter was interviewed by Paul Coates for later viewing on the TV networks. He's back, Paul Coates. You might recall his article reporting his discovery of the Mattachine Foundation or his show, Confidential File, from season one of the podcast. Confidential File. A report by Paul Coates, one of the nation's distinguished news reporters, brings you a factual report on America today, its people and their lives.
Introduced to some 12 million viewers as Terry, she gave a rundown of the organization, its aims, and purpose. When she estimated the membership between 125 and 150, Coates asked if she hadn't meant to add the word thousand. Coates seemed intrigued that such a group would dare to put on a convention. Aren't you inviting disturbance? He asked and seemed surprised that the organization was receiving official recognition from law enforcement officers and professional people. He was particularly interested in the debate on the, quote, gay bar situation between Sidney Feinberg of the Alcoholic Beverage Control and Morris Lowenthal, attorney, at the 1960 convention in San Francisco. It seemed to Coates that the gay bar might help on the one hand by isolating the homosexual group, but might hurt on the other hand by enticing innocent youngsters into the group. To which Terry replied flatly, Innocent youngsters don't belong in bars. She said she appeared on the program because she believed the organization to be striving for a worthwhile goal. Fun fact, a married heterosexual sociologist who has researched lesbian lives visits all the panels of the convention, and by the time it's her turn to do her presentation, she's fallen in love with a woman and makes plans to leave her husband. Worthwhile goals, indeed. After the Confidential File episode airs, the DOB mailbox floods. Thank you a thousand times over for your publication. How elated I am to know that such a magazine exists. I can't begin to tell you how lonely it is walking alone. I have an intense longing to communicate with other persons like myself who live on the outside. LL, California. You have just witnessed another authentic report by Paul Coates, distinguished columnist and news reporter. These factual reports are brought to you each week by this station. They reflect those of station or sponsor. And now, a final word from our sponsor. Later in the episode, we'll hear even more archival audio clips. I know, I know, try to stay calm. These clips will be from Randy Wicker's gay panel discussion on BAI in New York. Subscribers to my Patreon bonus podcast can now listen to an even deeper dive into that program. There is a type of homosexual who gets hung up on the idea that, boy, the more masculine, the more attractive. And he starts out chasing masculine homosexuals, and then he gets completely fixated on this idea of what you call rough trade. But there is also a way to be subtle and not sneaky. But if you, if you are a practicing homosexual, you, you will know that there is a ritual. And it's really, it's truly magnificent. In, you know, in the art of cruising, because I've discussed this, and also the bit, you might be very tired, you've had a very pleasant evening, you might have been to the theater, you might have been to the movies, you might have been walking, and you're going home. You're not interested in sex, you don't want a sexual partner, but you pass somebody, and it's very elaborate, and uh, it's, it's very humorous sometimes, you too, know, and it's marvelous. And the people that go to homosexual bars and look down on those people that follow devious practices of walking along the waterfront and knocking on truck driver cabs and climbing in with a truck <laughs> It is one of the juicier shows in the archives. Subscribe to the bonus podcast, Forgotten Fairy Tales, at patreon.com slash queer serial. It's $3 a month, and there's already a whole catalog of bonus episodes for you to catch up on. And that comes with lots of other fun bonus content, too, but you probably heard me ramble about all that on here before. 
more, so check it all out at the link in the episode notes. The attitude of some people is to try to treat it in an entirely punitive way, with the idea that the more severe the punishment and disgrace, the less likely that this condition will occur, at least as far as overt behavior is concerned. If you had one man in the society that would rather act like a woman, dress like a woman, then many others can follow his example if they wish to. Others emphasize the effect of the whole cultural pattern and feel that it may very well affect the incidence of homosexuality and particularly the amount of overt homosexuality. A recent Mattachine Review cover is titled, The Homosexual Swish, Does He Deserve the Scorn That Society Heaps Upon Him? Readers respond. He is a menace, and decent homos have cause to resent him. I am not frustrated. I do have a sense of humor. I have a respectable position, and would lose it immediately were I even suspect. I cannot go along with you when you present the stupid, frivolous side of homosexuality. Feeding material to those who will use it for selfish ends and hold us up to ridicule. I refer to the merry type of conversation in stories and articles. I know, enjoy and employ the jargon, but never outside the circle. It has its place, and this precludes the general public. To give such information in black and white, making it available to scoffers, is a form of suicide. Don't make things more difficult. Let us aim for respect. It can't be said for sure whether the writers of these letters know that the gay voting block in San Francisco was organized by a drag queen and the women wearing pants in D.O.B. One magazine in L.A. prints an article titled Swish or Swim. They write, Cowardly cruel in a way in which most homophiles seem bent on currying favor with the cultists of hyper-maleness and continually throwing contempt on any who do not wear the present dismal male livery or carry themselves with a tough guy slouch and so look, sound, and smell indistinguishable from the mass. Homophiles need to tolerate their own kind. Everyone who believes in mental health should support the right to nonviolent liberty of expression. The homophile that sneers at his fellow homophile's idiosyncrasies is doing almost the worst service to his own cause, the cause of liberty and the cause of life. Mental illness is encouraged by the refusal to let people play any but one stiff conventional jejun role. Readers write in to one magazine. I am a man, 61 years old, who has worn feminine attire whenever possible since birth. I am not ashamed of it. In fact, I enjoy being seen in one of my many pretty dresses. As I write this, I am fully clothed as a lady from the skin out. Nylon stockings and white high-heeled shoes. I'm also wearing earrings, necklace, and bracelets. My friends all admire me and prefer to have me dress as a lady. Perhaps there are many of your readers who dress as I do. Let's hear from them. I am quite sure that so long as we have flits and pansies who want sympathy, we will not have tolerance and understanding. The homosexual contributes so much of beauty and mind to our world that I am not ashamed of being one. I refuse to lie or make attempts to be a he-man just to hold a job. I do not mean by this that I am one of those people that go out of their way to wiggle their hips. But I have a soft, cultured voice and a certain effeminate sensitivity that seem to tell people I am gay. 
I have no intention of submerging my individuality for a lot of weak-kneed conformists who, if they were honest with themselves, would admit they admire me for having the courage to be a nonconformist. But it is easier for them to join the mob and agree with general condemnations than to stick their necks out. To answer these questions, here is Dr. Margaret Mead, world-famous anthropologist and associate curator of the American Museum of Natural History in New York. Anthropologist Margaret Mead touches on this topic similarly in the first segment of The Rejected. Uh, there are American Indian tribes where the transvestite, who can do everything a man can do and everything a woman can do, is regarded as superior throughout the world, whether it's a question of the relationship between teacher and pupil, as in ancient Greece, or between pairs of young warriors, or whether, as among some of the Siberian tribes, all religious practitioners, both men and women, were transvestites. We find that it's society that patterns homosexual behavior. It's society that tells young children that these are possible roles or impossible roles. It's society that treats these either as sacred as, or profane, as preferred or as criminal, a society that says that this is either good or bad behavior. And equally, there are societies that are so aggressively heterosexual that they deny to individuals even warmth or tenderness or friendship towards their own sex. So that if we look the whole world over with all that we know about people at each period of history, we have to say that homosexuality is a potential of human beings, that human beings are deeply bisexual and bisexual at different periods in their maturation, and whether the society is going to treat it as a crime and condemn those individuals with homosexual propensities to living a life as exiles and, and criminals. This is entirely a matter of culture. Society has set up the way sex is to be lived, and it is within the power of each society that is able to change, to change any one of their attitudes towards this question as they wish. The Rejected is such a huge hit that KQED syndicates it on NET channels nationwide on at least 40 stations. Variety says the station explained homosexuality in a matter-of-fact down-the-middle manner, covering it quite thoroughly and for the most part interestingly. Almost all of the viewers' letters sent into the station are positive. Dorian Book Service at Pangraphic Press publishes a transcript that nearly 400 people order, which you can look at on my Instagram at Queer Serial. Most homophiles are pleased at how well the Mattachinos presented themselves as normal folks. Others, like Randy Wicker, find it all very apologetic. Remember young Randy Wicker? Formerly Charles Hayden Jr., he dropped his father's name, changed it to Randy Wicker, he stole the Mattachine mailing list to make his own survey of homosexuals, and brazenly advertised the New York Mattachines so well that they got evicted. When he attended Mattachine's West Side Discussion Group in New York, one member said to him, how can we expect the police to allow us to congregate? Let's face it, we're criminals. You can't allow criminals to congregate. It disgusts me. Why do I have to sit here and listen to idiots like you say things like that? You've let society brainwash you. There is one question left. And for parents, it will be the most important one. Actually, it is a double question. 
What can a parent do to prevent his child from becoming a homosexual? And what should a parent do once it is obvious that his child is a homosexual? Randy Wicker bursts into the WBAI New York radio offices. The listener-supported station has aired an hour-long special titled The Homosexual in America, hosted by a group of psychiatrists who say homosexuals are sick and need curing, which they can provide in just a few hours. Wicker enters the office of Dick Elman, the public affairs director. Why do you have these people on that don't know a damn thing about homosexuality? I spend my whole life in gay society. He demands and receives equal airtime to respond, so long as he can find others to go on the air with him. Of course he does. The 90-minute special is titled Live and Let Live, featuring Randy and seven other men. They sit on the floor of an apartment in the village and discuss their issues in the workplace, police harassment, and acceptance in society. A reporter at the New York Journal-American writes before the program even airs that the station should change its call letters to WSICK for airing an arrogant, card-carrying swish. Their words. Randy Wicker alerts every paper in town of this attack on his program, assuring headlines once it airs on July 15th at 7 p.m. Well, do you think, Randy, that uh, your choice of a homosexual role is partially attributable to your revulsion against normal domesticity? What do you mean, normal domesticity? Well, I'm not saying normal. Let's say bourgeois domesticity. That's a much better word, I think, (laughs) than the kind of courting process that you just described, which I think is a very accurate description of it. I'm not... No, No, quite honestly, there are two people, two or three people here on the panel, however, who are bisexual and actively so. Now, before I turn the whole thing over to them, I'm going to say that every bisexual I've ever known that is actually as much interested in women as in men, because men, it's such an easier life. In other words, if you're tired and lonely, you walk out into a bar, or you call up a friend, you go over and you spend the night together. It's an uncomplicated, easy relationship. And just as he hoped, the New York Times covers it twice in one day. They call the show the most extensive consideration of the subject to be heard on American radio. Newsweek does a full page saying it's 96 minutes of intriguing, if intellectually inconclusive, listening. Stations in L.A. and San Francisco rebroadcast the program. Randy begins offering a tape of the program for $6. The Realist takes several of their issues to print the entire transcript of the program, and the New York Herald Tribune and Variety also cover it favorably. Obviously, complaints to the FTC follow, but fortunately, the station doesn't act on them. Calls flood the radio station. Suddenly, press about Randy Wicker is all over town. The homophiles at One Magazine, though, are not pleased with Randy's honesty. They write, No homosexual, no matter how well-trained, should ever allow himself to speak extemporaneously upon the subject. You can't say, oh, oh I can't say that on radio. <laughs> <laughs> A daughter in the latter writes, We must ask ourselves, is this crusade an upstaging of the more conservative homophile organizations? What is our answer to Randolph Wicker's truth-telling campaign? In D.C., Frank Kameny writes to Randy Wicker for a tape of the program. He includes $6 and requests to meet the young activist. To distance his past connections with the conservative Mattachine Society of New York, Randy Wicker launches the Homosexual League of New York, a one-man league of his own. And I said, hello, I'm Randy Wicker from the Homosexual League of New York, and I'd like to talk to you about making homosexuality a legitimate political and social issue in our day. And even in the dim light, you could see them go white. We may be able to help the individual control his behavior 
even if we cannot alter his homosexual tendencies. Homosexuality is assuredly no advantage, but it is nothing to be ashamed of. Many highly respectable individuals of ancient and modern times have been homosexuals. Several of the greatest men among them, Plato, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and others. It is a great injustice to persecute homosexuality as a crime, and a cruelty, too. It is clear, therefore, that this is a large problem and that we are going to have to live with it. Back in San Francisco, paranoia about bar raids continues. There often seems to be steps forward with the issue, but then another raid happens. When business is slow on Tuesdays, San Francisco gay bar owners meet for drinks, mainly to boost the business of whatever bar they meet in but they end up discussing methods of improving the businesses and protecting themselves from police. Every week, these bar owners meet at a different bar. They set up a phone tree system to alert each other of ABC agents on their way to raid. After so many shutdowns by the city, the bar owners coordinate a loan fund for unemployed members of their group. By the summer of 62, they incorporate their group as a nonprofit, the Tavern Guild of San Francisco. The bar owners agree on fixed prices to level the competition and work together. The guild develops friendly relationships with their liquor and beer distributors so that when police do come knocking, the beer distributors announce public support of the bars in order to protect their own profits and thus protect the bars. Soon, the Tavern Guild is hosting Monday night auctions at the bars to bring in business and raise funds for the Daughters of Belitis, Mattachine, Elsie, and the many groups to come. But the laws are on the books. How are they enforced? Can they be enforced? The penalties in this area for such activity are extremely severe. These laws are frequently incredibly self-contradictory and totally irrational. Clearly, if we were going to enforce these laws strictly, we would turn the country into a police state, if not a lunatic asylum. Dear ACLU of the National Capital Area, Dear Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black, Dear Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy, I write in regard to recent actions on the part of investigators of the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the direction which some of their questioning has taken. We formally request that in regard to the Mattachine Society of Washington, such inquiries and investigations as to membership and other facts and other similar acts by the FBI and by investigative agents and agencies throughout the federal government be brought to a halt immediately. We will be pleased to discuss these and related matters with you personally, should you wish it. Your early reply is requested. Thank you. Sincerely yours, Franklin E. Kameny. Attorney General Kennedy sends this letter from Kameny over to Director Hoover at the FBI. The letter explains the intimidating tactics performed by the Bureau and in their investigations of Ronald Brass at the Department of Commerce. Hoover writes off these claims to Kennedy by implying that the MSW is nothing but a group of sex crime suspects he should ignore. Kennedy does not respond to Kameny. While Frank's Washington Mattachine joins the committees of the new NCACLU in D.C., Frank writes to the director of the U.S. Public Health Service to request that questions involving homosexuality be removed from medical history reports. 
the acting director of security at the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, does not reply to Kameny. The letter is forwarded to Director Hoover at the FBI. Hoover's desk is piling up with information about this noisy new group. Manicine Society of Washington. An agent in the Washington field office sends Hoover a memo. He explains that a source, likely Warren Scarberry, has informed the office of, in his words, a hangout for colored homosexuals called the Cozy Corner and another called Van Dykes. The informant provides the names of three gay men of color. He also tells the agent that the MSW president plans to submit a letter probably sometime in September 1962 to all members of the United States House of Representatives and of the United States Senate. He will decry alleged mistreatment of homosexuals and will ask for equality for homosexuals in our society. Warren Scarberry is upgraded from a potential confidential informant to a trusted confidential informant. The agent contacts Deputy Chief Roy Blick to ask if he has any info about this MSW president, Frank Kameny. Blick says, yes, I've met him in my office. I even have a photo of Frank Kameny, and I'll send it to the Bureau. Five copies are made of this agent's memo, which signifies Hoover's intent to alert all leadership in the House and Senate ahead of Kameny's incoming letter. It is absolutely necessary to be prepared to take definite, unequivocal positions upon supposedly controversial matters. We should have a clear, explicit, consistent viewpoint, and we should not be timid in presenting it. He desires the same, same kind of right to live his life freely and without interference, to pursue his happiness as a responsible citizen, and to receive the benefits of constitutional rights, due process, and protection of the law that all of us enjoy. Benefits and protections of the law. What law? The chief argument, however, against these laws is that there's a great deal of blackmail, entrapment, coercion of individuals. Uh, Many people have committed suicide because of being involved through blackmail procedures. And this, in my opinion, is the basic reason why the laws must be removed from the books. August 28, 1962, the Mattachine Society of Washington sends a press release to every senior government official, from President Kennedy down to every United States representative. Senators, cabinet members, and congresspeople read of the Mattachine's primary effort against the Civil Service Commission, military discrimination, illogical security clearance rules, and outdated laws. The MSW explains their overall mission. Dedicated to improving the status of the homosexual in our society. Each letter is signed, Franklin E. Kameny. Kameny sends a copy directly to Director Hoover. Hoover does not respond. Meanwhile, Warren Scarberry brings a copy of the MSW Constitution to the Bureau, which the FBI then shares with Deputy Chief Blick at Metro PD's Morals Division. Blick replies to the FBI with a photo of Frank Kameny. Letters of introduction from the MSW to the people of Congress are met with many different reactions. Most people think it's a crank. 
One Democrat responds with a handwritten message. I am unalterably opposed to your purpose and cannot see how any person in his right mind can condone the practices which you justify. Please do not contaminate my mail with such filthy trash. A Republican responds similarly. In all my six years of service in the United States Congress, I have not received such a revolting communication. Another Democrat forwards his letter to Hoover, asking if anything is being done about removing homosexuals working in federal offices. The Navy Secretary and Secretary of Defense also forward their letters to Hoover. Kameny receives two helpful replies, though. Congressman Nix from Philadelphia is a Democrat and the son of a former slave. He agrees to meet with Frank and support his organization. Frank writes to the Janus Society of Philadelphia, encouraging them to vote for Nix. New York Congressman Ryan also agrees to support the MSW, and Frank writes to the MSNY, encouraging them to support Ryan. True to their word, in September, a bill intended to help the Department of Defense strengthen security clearance and weed out homosexuals comes up, and Nix and Ryan both vote against it. The bill loses by six votes. Kameny and the MSW have found two allies. Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara. Even if, for various reasons of prejudice, it should be felt that homosexuals are unsuitable for service in the armed forces, then those discovered should be discharged with fully honorable discharges. Reason, justice, and fairness call for no less. The present practice of giving less than fully honorable discharges is needlessly vicious and causes much totally unnecessary suffering and hardship. If you do not want a man, then let him go, but do not blight the remainder of his life in the process. After forwarding this letter to Hoover, Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara responds directly to Frank with a special request. It is a common misconception, I believe, that um, the homosexual is congregated in such uh, large cities throughout the country as New York, San Francisco, etc., but I think that we can safely say that a homosexual is found everywhere in every small community, every rural district throughout the country. Because we receive letters from uh, such places as Encampment, Wyoming, Chapel, Nebraska, Old Hickory, Tennessee, all of those places. October 1962. As Kameny awaits replies to his letters and the rejected is distributed to educational television stations across the country, Virginia Prince locks up the Chevalier Publications office in the back part of the building where her chemical business is run under her birth name. She packs her car up. Virginia and her wife drive three hours north of New York City to the Catskills. The problem of homosexuality is one of serious concern, not only for the individuals involved in it, but also for the entire community. Virginia's new friend Susanna has a safe resort in the Catskills, where she's decided to host a private transvestite gathering. The Chevalier Dion Resort, as she named it. About 60 upper-class, self-described heterosexual cross-dressers and their partners drive up and take rooms in a big old ranch house. It is a problem that bears directly upon the integrity of family life and the moral foundations of our society. The transvestites in the Catskills, some of whom, like Virginia, will later identify as transgender, they put on skits and sing songs with an old piano set up on a small stage in a big barn. Trans people who can afford to stay tucked away in places like the Catskills do so quietly and safely, while the white, conformity-minded gay activists make their case for acceptance on TV and radio. If they have the means and the privilege to, gender-variant people often remain secluded, outcast, rejected. 
It is an extremely complex problem about which we are coming to know more than we used to know, but not nearly as much as we still need to know. As the media, including the documentary The Rejected, continues to unravel the mystery of sexuality, those who are gender variant have even more difficult questions to answer. The rabbi monologuing on The Rejected speaks about the impacts of gay relationships on families, implying that it's not just the sex that corrupts relationships, but the defiance of gender roles. We must be sure that those remedies and solutions should not only preserve the moral integrity of society, but they should also be based on an enlightened moral concern for the individuals caught up in the problem of homosexual behavior. But moral problem that it is, we should regard and treat it as a psychological illness rather than as a crime subject to legal prosecution and punishment. There are many doors that are closed to the homosexual. Government work is closed. Teaching is closed. In fact, if a man is a proven homosexual, there are very few doors that are open. But suddenly, one opens. Frank Kameny receives the letter from Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara. On October 23, 1962, Frank and three other representatives of the Mattachine Society of Washington enter the Pentagon. Over three hours, they sit down with defense officials to make their case for security clearances for homosexuals. Frank explains that the security clearance program is broken, actually creating risks of blackmail. He says that homosexuals with clearances live in fear of being discovered by the Pentagon, because if they were to be blackmailed by a foreign government, they couldn't go to their superiors or they'd lose their job. One of the defense officials counters, saying homosexual sex lives make them more likely to get arrested. Frank asks, are you going to castrate everyone to grant clearances? The official says, all homosexuals are unstable. Frank replies curtly, and do you think all black people are dirty and stupid? Frank's entire argument is the same he made in his case to the Supreme Court. The government should have no authority over what is moral. Frank says homosexuality is not only not immoral, but it is moral and it is good and it is right. If homosexuals believed that they were safe at work and believed that they were moral citizens, they would not have the threat of blackmail hanging over them. The defense officials say, then don't ask us to help you. You need to change society. Frank argues that society is influenced by the government's actions. The government officials thank him for his time. The role of the homosexual is established by his society. How prevalent is homosexuality in our society? The homosexual as a security risk is, is another thing that is of great concern to us. And here again, we believe that it's the law itself, public attitude, and the stigma that exists against homosexuality which does, in, many, in some instances, make a homosexual a security risk. By and large, if these laws were changed, we'd find, I think, that the homosexual is no different than anyone else, except perhaps in his choice of a love object. The doctors, the lawyers, and the clergy have all had their say about the social behavior and moral conscience of the homosexual. The camera in the KQED studio slowly pushes in on Hal Call. He looks directly into the lens to everyone at home. But perhaps no one has asked the most basic and important question of all. Are homosexuals themselves satisfied with the way they are? From our observation, I think we'd have to say they are not. However, opinion is divided on this issue. 
Some people, many homosexuals in, indeed, have known no other orientation, no other way of life. Therefore, they have maybe no basis to make a judgment of whether they are or are not satisfied. However, they are all aware, I think, of the fact that legal and moral sanctions are against them throughout their lives, in their everyday uh, behavior, on the job, everywhere. These people, by and large, are unable to know and enjoy the benefits of family and the companionship which results from that. They have feelings of inferiority because of these sanctions against them. They are labeled security risks by our government. They are treated as undesirable in the armed forces and given less than honorable discharges from the armed forces if any trace of homosexual orientation and sometimes even association is discovered. Certainly, you can't say that the homosexual, when he has these sanctions against him, is a person satisfied with his condition. Especially pitiful, perhaps, is the condition of the older, lonely homosexual, the old auntie. If he hasn't established a number of other values in his life during his earlier years, he can often wind up in a very lonely and often dejected situation. In the Mattachine, we are seeking acceptance of the homosexual in society. Whether we approve of his type of conduct or not, the fact is he is in our midst and in large numbers. We hope that by acceptance, he may be spared much of the derision that society now points toward him, and that he may thereby be able to assume his full and equal place as a human being in the community. These are the rejected, millions upon millions, a few of them satisfied, many of them desperately unhappy. We have brought you some of the facts and presented some of the arguments. Perhaps with more facts and more argument will come the beginnings of understanding. Next week on episode 12, The Pleasure of a Response. You wouldn't be able to tell that the person you have heard is a homosexual. His parents don't know it, his neighbors don't know it, his fellow workers don't know it. Jose Saria broke ground for Harvey Milk to run for supervisor 15 years later. In 1977, 17 candidates from the Castro district ran in that election. More than half of them were gay. And a fun San Francisco fact, the Eureka Valley branch of the SF Public Library is named after Harvey Milk, and its address is 1 Jose Saria Court. Saria also made it possible for a legendary Chicago drag queen to run for mayor and then president in the early 90s. That's right. And why that all those boring old white straight men have all the fun. 
And I do know about tricky dicks, but we don't have to talk about that either. If a bad actor can be elected president, why not a good drag queen? That's why, at this time, I officially announce my candidacy for the Orifice of President of the United States. Yes, I'm throwing my wig into the ring. And I'm not taking this one off, so don't think that's going to happen. Joan Jett Black ran on the Queer Nation Party ticket, and her campaign slogan was Lick Bush in 92. Lick Bush in 92! Lick Bush in 92! Lick Bush in 92! Lick Bush in 92! And I am so excited to tell you, Joan Jett Black will be voicing a character on this podcast in a couple weeks. If you haven't heard of her, give her a Google. Follow on my Instagram. I'll be posting plenty of Joan Jett Black history. I am so excited. You might think we're joking. (laughs) Well, I'm sorry, but I think the fact that the U.S. is the only industrialized country without national health care is a joke. Yeah. I think the fact that some guys with friends in high places got away with opening savings and loans that were designed to steal from hardworking people and survived with their testicles intact is a joke. I think the fact that a woman who accused the Supreme Court nominee of sexually harassing her was judged by a group of all men, one of them being Ted Kennedy, is a fucking joke. Some tall redecoration is in order. And we are just the queers to do it. The White House will not be the White House any longer. It's going to be the Lavender House. Yeah, we're going to paint it. It's going to be fabulous. And also, people have been asking me, well, what are you going to do about... AIDS and AIDS research. Well, I'm just going to hand the CDC over to ACT UP and let them do it. Yeah. And we won't need a military because who's going to fight the dice on life? The first queer black drag queen president. And who won't that blow your skirts up on your We're putting the camp back in campaign. In the meantime, check out bonus episodes with crossover stories, standalone events in queer history, archival audio, interviews with activists, all sorts of fun stuff, all on my Patreon. You can get buttons, books, mugs, transcripts, and other fun stuff from the podcast. Patreon.com slash Queer Serial. Thanks to everyone subscribing to my Patreon. You are keeping the show going during this pandemic. Thank you so much. If you're a teacher looking for transcripts of episodes without joining Patreon, please contact me on QueerSerial.com. I'll get those right to you. Oh, and uh, I have... I have a third podcast, Outspoken LGBTQ Storytelling. It's stories told live by queer people here in Chicago. It's an archive of six years of monthly stories told live at Sidetrack. It's fascinating. They are so much fun. There is a link in the episode notes. You can subscribe to the Queer Serial newsletter in the episode notes for updates on all this stuff. 
This season is also funded in part by a grant from the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence San Francisco. Check out thesisters.org for more information about them. You can also support the show by leaving a nice little review with five stars on iTunes so more people can find the show. Resources for the podcast can be found at QueerSerial.com. An additional book I'd like to recommend that came out after I wrote these episodes is Eric Servini's The Deviant's War. Oh my god, I wish I had this book when I was doing research for the show. It's a fantastic biography of Frank Kameny. Finally, someone has put together the billion stories about Kameny's activism into one book with a beautifully written narrative. I highly recommend it. It's called The Deviant's War by Eric Servini. For more visuals and stories that didn't make the cut, check out the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at Queer Serial. The Instagram is way more active than Twitter. I don't know how to do Twitter. On my Instagram, you can see clips from The Rejected, Jose Sarias campaign materials, issues of Transvestia, all at Queer Serial. By the way, speaking of Transvestia, fans of the show Transparent, remember the episode where Mara goes to that camp in the woods in the flashback episode where she and other trans women basically get to vacation as women together? Sound familiar? The Chevalier Dion Resort, as she named it. It's not the same camp, but there were many like the Chevalier Dion Resort. Voice actors. Arrested Homosexual was played by Keith Green. San Francisco Examiner reporter by John Roth. Hal Call by Dominic Caruso. Jose Saria by John Martinez. Frank Kameny by Albert Williams. Jack Nichols by Nick Large. Phyllis Lyon by Jane Serenska. That is so good. Okay. I'm amazed by you. Okay, cool. I'm just like admiring the beauty of your tattoo that I haven't seen in so long. Thank you. (laughs) This is what's kicked it all off. You were like, have you ever heard of the Daughters of Bolita? Oh, right, because you have the the one on your leg. Yes, on my leg, yeah. Yeah. And you were like, have you seen this? Yeah. And I was like, no. Oh my god, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because it's so close. It's the same style. Clerk by Matt Camp. Del Martin by Salvi Ogato. This <laughs> 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 the whole time they've been doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah, they're just like, let's fucking go. And it's like, Tiptoe. <laughs> exactly. Scooby Doo Walk. Exactly. That's how they got uh, they got him every time. Yeah. Uh, Scooby Doo. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> okay. John Rivas and an FBI agent by Evan Camp. Warren Scarberry by Will Roscoe. I believe I can get this list for the FBI because the secretary has taken a liking to me. Okay. Matashino's writing to the editors by Connor Good, Matthew Ryle, Owen Keenan, Will Roscoe, and Lucian Grateri, Stella Rush by Julia Playall, Paul Coates Returns, played by Garrett Williams once again, Terry the Lesbian by Jen Freitag, Daughters of Belitis by Tina Munoz Pandaya and Marissa Clayton, Randy Wicker by Eddie Miller, when it's not the archival audio, Congressman by Mike Lysak, and Virginia Prince by Jacqueline Keeling. Thank you all so much for being such a huge part of this show. Audio clips from The Rejected are licensed by 13 Productions and WNET. This is NET, National Educational Television. Audio clips of Live and Let Live are courtesy of Pacifica Radio Archives and Randy Wicker. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions and also by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0. The original Mattachine Society Jester logo is used courtesy of One Archives at USC Libraries. I do all of this last part by memory now. Wow, thanks for listening. I'm Devlin Camp. See you next week. Bye. In this comic book is a love story, a boy and girl in love. They get married, and after an offensively lurid description, illustrated, of course, of the couple's wedding night, the book shows how the bride murders her husband by chopping his head off with an axe.
This comic book describes a sexual aberration so shocking that I couldn't mention even the scientific term on television. I think there ought to be a law against them. Tonight I'm going to show you why. Confidential File. A report by Paul Coates, one of the nation's distinguished news reporters, brings you a factual report on America today, its people, and their lives. <laughs> 